Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories, in which I speak to Professor Susanna Lipskin. Susanna is a prolific historian, academic, writer, and a seasoned broadcaster on the early modern period. She specialises in Henry VIII, the Tudor court and the women of 16th century France and is now turning her attention to a revisionist feminist history of Henry VIII's six wives. She is also the author of a Penguin Ladybird expert book on witches and it's the horrific witch hunts of the 16th and 17th century that we talk about today. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe but above all enjoy my chat with the wonderful Susie. Susanna Lipscomb, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's lovely to be here, Helen. Really good to see you. You too. So we're going to talk about witches and the history of witches and witchcraft. So why did the cult of the witch become so terrifying around the early modern period, yet witches as a concept had been around for centuries before that? This is the big question. I mean, so yes, people had believed in witches for thousands of years, and we've got evidence going back to ancient Greece and you know, throughout um, history, we can see examples of people believing that people could have evil powers and you know maim or kill or destroy crops or whatever it was, and also do positive things, you know, like conjuring love potions and you know helping heal somebody who had been bewitched. Why does it become so striking? I mean, I th- there's lots of reasons. I think one of the key things is that the, the elites start to believe in it. And so we have this intersection of popular belief in witchcraft, which is kind of rooted in both in folklore and in neighbourhood accusations and neighbourhood neighborhood relations with this grander idea of the witch um, that derives from various demonologies that start to be produced at this time. The most famous um, and one of the most influential is the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches, um, produced by Heinrich Kramer, who's a, a Dominican monk um, and published in the late 15th century. And it, at the beginning of it, he reproduces a papal ball which um, he does without authority, but it lends the authority of the church to his text and it uh, equates witches with heretics. And although it takes some time, really about 100 years, for that to sort of deeply root into the elite mindset, it starts to create the mental space in which witchcraft and witches can be taken seriously as a threat to godly society. So that's one reason. There are all sorts of others, I think. It really only starts to kick off in terms of the numbers of people 
accused and prosecuted from about 1550 and really, uh, you know, late 16th century and then into the 17th century and then tails off after, roughly speaking, about 1650, but, you know, over 150 years or so, one would say, broadly. So it does take a little while and there is various other circumstances that happen. You know, this is a time of uh, religious division, obviously, and... It's a time where people are seeing the Antichrist and the devil, as it were, sort of stalking the land as never before. And it's a time also of great deprivation in terms of harvests failing, and uh, which seems particularly apposite to be talking about, times of uh, epidemic disease. So the sweating sickness, um, influenza, killing large numbers of people, syphilis, and of course the plague. <laughs> Where, so it's a time which feels kind of apocalyptic to many people, I think. And what sort of crimes were women and men as well, because men were accused witches, what, what sort of things were they being accused of? Yeah, so women are accused, uh, or yeah, accused in about 80% of cases across Europe. That's obviously a very broad general statistic, but that means roughly one in five accused witches is male. And they're accused of things like harming livestock or killing, damaging crops. There's a lot, lot basically to do with fecundity of the farms, but also of injuring children or striking down somebody who was previously healthy. So that's roughly, roughly what they are considered to do. Um, sometimes they're thought to raise storms. You know, that's one of the things that James the Sixth of Scotland comes to believe about them. But mainly it's sort of injury and uh, harm and sometimes murder. You mentioned that this was a time of religious dispute and conflict. Were accusations of witchcraft used as a vehicle for either side? You'd think, right? That seems like a nice, a happy, uh, not happy, but at least a sort of neat hypothesis for understanding what's going on. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. So we don't have Protestants accusing Catholics and vice versa. Um, and it also doesn't sort of primarily happen in a Protestant rather than a Catholic area. It manifests itself in different ways in Protestant and Catholic areas, but that's all. No, it it is very much that the Reformation kind of creates the environment in which it happens, this, this sort of febrile, anxious time in which people can imagine that the devil is at work, I think. So it's it's a bit more tangential, but it obviously has an impact on people's minds. So is this particularly a, a secular sort of issue within society? What's fascinating about it is quite how secular it is in terms of how it's managed, because the other crucial thing that happens in this period of time, because of elite belief, is that witchcraft moves from being something that's dealt with by churches and church courts to becoming a crime, a secular crime, a capital crime. And so 1542 in England, 1563 in Scotland, and at various times in the 16th century, various edicts across Europe, witchcraft becomes a crime and it is being dealt with in law courts. And that's why in England, for example, witches are hanged rather than burnt because they are accused of of murder or of, you know, of injury as opposed to heresy, which they're accused of elsewhere. So, yes, no, it is surprisingly secular, even though obviously the, the, all of the content of it is supernatural. Talking about the law courts, how did the legal system adapt 
to accusations of, of witchcraft. How would, how would they go about setting up legislation to try people for such crimes? So, I mean, these are statute passed in Parliament. The real question, I suppose, is how they went about the investigations. Um, but these are done, you know, in standard judicial circuits like the, the you know, the home circuit assizes. So these are courts with, in England with a jury of peers and evidence brought before them. There's a really interesting distinction between what's going on in England where we have this judicial court system that uses juries and sometimes uses ordeals. So you've, you know, you'll have heard of the swimming ordeal where you've got to try and test the innocence of a witch. And so one idea is that if you put a witch into water, if she ha- uh, an alleged witch, if she or he is actually a witch, then he or she will have rejected the waters of their baptism and therefore the waters will reject them. But there's a big distinction between that and what's happening in continental Europe, which is the inquisitorial system of justice, where you've got a sort of a much more documented system where witnesses are called and examined by members of by a member of the court, and the process there is about finding um, either eyewitnesses to a crime. Normally, you need two eyewitnesses to a crime to convict, or you need a confession and witchcraft you know, has been hidden from sight by the devil, or we might think maybe isn't actually happening. And so you need a confession. And so that leads to the system of uh, using torture in order to try and extract a confession. So the way that the, the justice systems work makes a big difference to how witches are treated at the time. Am I right in thinking that women in particular were, the idea of them being quite sexualised around witchcraft, you know, having relations with the devil? Why do you think that that sex has a big role within the accusations of witchcraft and what do you think that says about how how female sexuality was perceived in this period? That's really interesting. I mean, so yes, absolutely. First of all, that you're absolutely right. So in many of the testimonies that we get from those who confess, whether under torture or not, the idea is that the devil has come to them as women in the form of a man and laid with them or in the form of a goat or in the form of a toad and they've had sex with this the devil in these forms and um, we're told that the devil's semen was intolerably cold but the, you know or they sleep with his uh, you know having sex with his incubi and succubi the, you know the demons so sex is definitely part of it i mean in part this comes from this comes from the demonologies these things conjured up by members of the elites and then are posed quite often in leading questions to those who are being interrogated. And surprise, surprise, especially if you're under torture, you know, you're responding to the questions that they're asking and saying back to them exactly what reflects their preoccupations rather than what you think has happened. Or it can be with torture, of course, that one's idea of what has happened is changed because of the destructive process of torture. It psychologically breaks down a person. And so you come to believe what you're being told. What it says about the ideas about sex, well, women were very much considered to be the source of sin following Eve. In this period, they were very much considered the source of sexual sin. You know, we might think it takes two to tango, but in the 16th century, it clearly was the woman who was the lead partner. And so quite often you get, you know, in court records, I've looked at criminal sentences against for fornication, so sex before marriage, and there's a woman being convicted... <laughs> 
And the man might even be mentioned by name, but is not punished in the same way. So she, it's clearly that the woman is leading the way. And women are thought to be more easily tempted. And so they can they will succumb to the devil's overtures and that this is a particular weak spot for them. It doesn't mean that men can't be tempted by the devil, but they don't tend to be tempted sexually. So you've mentioned the elite kind of leading the charge against witches. James the Sixth Scotland and James I of England, he was quite had quite a significant part to play in this. Why was he so obsessed with the idea of the witch and how did he cultivate it? He got obsessed with it because when he wanted to marry Anne of Denmark, she was due to come over by boat and the storms were so great that she couldn't make it over. In the end, he sort of went romantically to go and pick her up and so he actually spent time in Copenhagen and when he was there, you know, heard, I think, a lot about continental ideas of witchcraft and the fact that this attack had been deliberately on him, the most Christian king, they all think they're the most Christian king, Um, you know, that he's this at the forefront of Protestant royalty in Europe and he thinks that this has been a deliberate attack on him. And so when he takes her back to Scotland, he also takes back ideas about witchcraft. And then, surprise, surprise, in, yeah, in the next few years, there are, um, there's evidence of witches acting against him, not just in Denmark, but in Scotland. And so he personally oversees some of the interrogations and trials of the North Berwick witches, and as a result of this, writes his own demonology, which is an interesting debate between one character who doesn't believe in witchcraft and one character who does, and clearly the latter turns out to be the most sensible one. And um, at each point it looks at, you know, how to identify a witch, but it also looks at how to identify werewolves and fairies and... I don't know if you remember the slightly schlocky series a few years back called True Blood... But I remember when I, I saw it, I was like, this person, the person who wrote this has definitely read James's demonology because it's got stuff in about glamouring your victims. And like, anyway, it's just so, this is all taken from the 16th century handbook of witches. And James's demonology, because it's written by a reigning monarch, obviously is massively influential. So in a way, it's sort of demonising folklore, which is quite a sad thing in itself. Yes, and of course, we only really get folklore through when it's passed through that filter of what the elites writing it down and what they made of it. So the most famous witch trials are the ones in Salem in America, but um, but also the Pendle witch trials in England. Were there any others that haven't received quite the same level of attention that you came across that you found particularly interesting? I mean... There weren't really, comparatively speaking, that weren't that many trials in England. And so, on the whole, they tend to have had quite a lot of coverage. <laughs> um, you know, there's a major, there's the major instance of what happened in the 1640s in East Anglia, for example. And there's a, a case written about by Malcolm Gaskell that is of a woman called Margaret Moore, And it's one of many cases in East Anglia in the 1640s. But I found it particularly moving because it tells the story of a woman who has had three of her children die and her fourth child is ailing. And she tells the story of having heard a voice at the door and somebody knocking um, and the voice being the voice of one of her children that had died saying, you know, good mother, sweet mother, let me in. And effectively, 
making a deal with her that if she gave her soul, the child who remained would live. And it gives such insight into why people felt that they needed to turn to witchcraft, if indeed they did, that it, or at least the sort of fantasy of hope there, that they could do something in order to save their remaining child. And so she makes this deal with the devil, as it were. And, and we know about this because she was tried and then she was hanged at Ely. And it just, that sort of detail of a confession goes to, to the heart of what witchcraft is about, from my point of view. It's not really about magical powers. It's really about desperation and profoundly awful circumstances where people can't control their lives and yet are, are, hope, are you know, inspired by the fantasy that they can. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's such a sad story. But it's also true, I mean, as a mother, she would be bound to, obviously that would be her response. And yet it's really heartbreaking. And I'm sure that there were many other stories of, of that ilk. And I think that says something about the sort of lack of the, the female voice within, you know, the grand scope of history as well, and how it was almost in these women's um, testimonies that you actually get a, a sense of what life was like and, and, and the, the female response during this period. Yet, tragically, that's in their demise. Yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one sort of small silver lining to these trials is that they do give us extraordinary insight into women's lives in a way that lots of other records don't. And, you know, I am really struck by the fact that there are very, very few books about mothering in history. Um, there's a wonderful book recently by Sarah Knott. But, you know, on the whole, the, you don't get that many books about mothering, even though it's what women were doing all the time. Six, eight, ten pregnancies, you know, the number of children they were looking after, being pregnant, having small children to rear. If they were particularly poor, they would have been breastfeeding or they would have been sending their children away, trying to cope with that level of of mothering and yet we don't hear about it because it's they haven't got any time to write if they even can <laughs> about to say, there's um, no time <laughs> there's no time so it's, it's completely lost to history and the other end of the spectrum actually that we do hear about through these cases as well is older women so women post-menopause because they are menopausal and post-menopausal women are um, disproportionately represented in the number of those who are accused of witchcraft because witchcraft is often considered to be a sort of anti-fertility and so we hear again about something that re has resonates in our time, which is skin hunger, like a st starving to to be touched, and fantasies of being touched, uh, which in a an age which is deeply religious and where guilt is uh, abounds, they consider you know dreams, for example, to be reality, um, and that they have indeed laden with the devil. How do you think this typical image of the witch then that we know today was fostered? Do you think that it was through this um, this idea of the hag, the you know the postmenopausal woman, the woman who had no function now in society, appallingly so, but sort of deemed deemed useless and therefore created into some kind of villain? 
Yes, absolutely. So uh, hags are how witches are represented, um, shriveled up, as you say, no longer fertile and therefore no longer useful and also quite often widowed. So no longer under the authority of a man, which was thought to you know, keep them under control. And, you know, the, the add to that kind of that they might be deformed in some way or have some sort of disability that they might be ugly or, you know, aged in various ways. That's how witches were portrayed. And then there are various elements like the cat comes from very much, it's in very much an English idea about witchcraft, which is having a familiar as an animal, doesn't have to be a cat. And the flying backwards or flying on a broomstick, that comes from ideas in the demonologies at the time that witches fly to Sabbaths where they get together and celebrate their evilness and they worship the devil. And so various elements come from folklore. And then, of course, you know, given enough time anything horrific can become amusing um and put together you know, to scare children yeah hocus pocus is still i think terrifying yet hilarious at the same time <laughs> <laughs> ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So what about the masculine impression on of women and how men treated witches and how they sought to prove their, their evil? I mean, there was this appalling figure, wasn't there, Matthew Hopkins? Yes, the so-called self-appointed witch finder general. <laughs> See, to me, I just think how there must be some very twisted motivation behind that to feel so compelled as to as you self-appoint. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. <laughs> I suppose one could argue for some sort of sense of divine appointment to pursuing evil, and you know, you could they could read some sort of religious motivation in there. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've, essentially, he's a, sort of a bit of a psychopath. He's also being paid a lot of money. Uh, he goes around towns in East Anglia and in Essex, saying, you know, I can I can get rid of your witches. And they, they pay him for each one. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of economic motivation there. He can do it because it's happening during the Civil War. So it's the anarchy of, uh, of normal lawful procedures broken down. And one of the ways he's so successful is that he 
deprives his victims, his alleged witches, of sleep. So torture is not normally allowed in the English system, but sleep deprivation, as we know, is a form of torture. And so um, the, the, you know, people confess to things uh, and that, you know, once you've got confessions and they can denounce others and then you've got, you can have a sort of run-on system. But yes, uh, Hopkins is an extraordinary character. And uh, there's a wonderful book, um, talking Malcolm Gaskell again, there are other wonderful people written about witchcraft I should tell you about, but he's written a lovely book called Witchfinders, um, which explores Hopkins, if anyone wants to know more about him. No, not really. I mean, <laughs> no, obviously, I would definitely love to know more about him. Far more interested in the um, in the witches. But how did, I mean, how did this tail off? Was it, did it come hand in hand with the restoration period at all? Or did that have any impact on it? It, so it tails off across Europe at different times. So the last outbreak, um, last accused and executed witches in the Dutch Republic are in 1609, and that's before some of the sort of major witch trials in uh, elsewhere in, 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 in Germany, in England, and, of course, in New England with Salem. Salem actually happens at a time when they are really tailing off in England. Um, it's at a time when just when spectral evidence, you know, that is being used in Salem, in England you can have juries saying, but, you know, the, all we've got against them is the evidence of their own confession. And that's a real sea change that you can start to doubt that. So it comes about, it doesn't exactly line up with the Restoration, no. There are a range of different, just as there have been a range of things setting off in the first place, there's a range of things um, that come to, to make it seem unlikely. Um, and this changing attitudes towards evidence is at the heart of it. And essentially, to simplify it massively, but the elites stop believing. And once they stop believing, you can't really take it to trial. Um, And this happens well before witchcraft stops being a crime under law. So actually, you have a few occasional cases in the um, 18th century of mobs who you know we found our witch you know we want to have, have her prosecuted but the, the authorities like there aren't really such things as witches so um you know and there are a couple of extrajudicial killings of suspected witches as a result so it takes time for attitudes to change at every level of society yes yeah, so I, I imagine that um this went on for quite a long time within close-knit communities and people who are still quite afraid of the superstition of the witch. Yeah, and the the other thing to say about all of this um, is, of course, that if you fear that someone's a witch, you have to be really pretty gung-ho to go and accuse them at law. (laughs) You know, because the whole point is they've got supernatural powers. And so Robin Briggs has done some wonderful work looking at how long it took for the reputation of a witch to build up, which is years and years, uh, you know, 20 years or so, which is one reason why they're often so old. And that that means that for many, many years, people have suspected this person to be a witch and have, you know, avoided her, generally her, where possible, and all the rest of it. But actually, there has to be a circumstance that is so devastating that it demands... Um, attention so much that they they will kick that fear up to an accusation. And so much of the time, there will always be in every neighbourhood, somebody who's suspected of being a witch. And whether you do something about it or not is quite another matter. Yeah, it's sort of at which point 
also, you know, when does healer and witch cross over with each other? And 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 I suppose that's a very fine line within these these close knit, possibly rural communities. That's a a relationship that is probably quite fragile. Yes, if if things go wrong, if the healer doesn't heal, perhaps. I mean, it's very hard to prove that it's a very good hypothesis, and almost certainly there's truth in it. What's hard to do is to prove it. Prove it. Nobody's sort of really done an, an analysis of, or if it were even deep, even possible of, you know, these are the accused witches, and this is how many of them were members, were healers or cunning folk um, who were coming up with potions or you know, using herbs in the garden to help heal, um, maybe throwing in a slightly unorthodox prayer as well, and therefore it counts as magic, you know. But it does seem that there's probably some overlap, at least. Is there any any good witches? Were there any ever examples of people revering witches? Or even, not necessarily in the early modern period, even later on, I mean, at some point, I don't know, maybe this was in the 19th century, the idea of the witch and the folklore had a reinvention to become quite a... Not a glamorous thing, but something to be that was quite artistic, quite ethereal. Mm, I wonder when that happened. I mean, I think in part that happens through um, fairy tales and the collection of fairy tales at the end of the 18th century onwards. And partly it happens as a result of the kind of turn towards spiritualism and things like that in the 19th century, the fascination of the occult. So I think it's quite a long way from when witches are genuinely feared um, that they might kill you or they might injure your children or whatever. I think so there has to be a, a, a big psychological gap for the witch to become a creature of fascination, I think. And, and you know, the fact that, well, there's two things happening in the world today. One, at, in Western society generally, um, people don't believe in witches as being able to maim or hurt them. And there has been this uh, colliery of massive fascination in witches and you know wizards and look at uh, obviously harry potter and um, hogwarts at the same time internationally globally there is a rise in the number of people being accused of witchcraft and the number of people being executed as witches so we have these two things happening going on at the same time and sometimes the two impinge on each other or at least the reality of witchcraft for those who believe can pop up in like the case of Christy Bamu, for example, in London, East London, accused of being a witch. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how one subject, how one fascination can go in two incredibly, incredibly opposing um, directions. Thank you so much, Susie, for chatting to me. Um, you've written a book on witches and the history of witches. It's a very little book. It's, in fact, a Ladybird expert book. So Ladybird decided to do a series of books on things like quantum mechanics and Timbuktu and all sorts of things. And they got me to do one on witchcraft. So it's like those books you had when you were a child. There's a picture on one side and there's text on the other side. Um, there's a bit more text than there was when you were a child. So it's about, it's about 6,000 words long. You can read it in a sitting. But I wanted to try and answer in the the same sort of length as a lecture at university why did the witchcraft accusations um, and prosecutions of the 16th and 17th centuries happen and so that's what I've tried to do in this little little book well you're a natural um you're a natural person to write it because you've been directing a lot of your attention um to women in history um and you it was about a year ago that you released your voices of neem book as well so that's available still in shops and online um what are you working on at the moment 
And and the interesting thing about Neem actually is it's a case where it's the sort of the dog that didn't bark in the night where it's the the authorities there don't believe in witchcraft and so lots of accusations um, occur and I talk about them in the book but the, the authorities don't take them seriously and so they don't become executions. So right now I have gone back to Henry VIII's court and um, I've discovered this subject about which no one's really written which is um, Henry VIII was married six times did you know that and so I'm writing about the six queens of Henry VIII. Now obviously this has been something that's been done a lot but I decided that uh, when I've looked at many of the sort of collective biographies of the queens, many of them frankly come to estimations of these women that I think are quite difficult to stomach in the 21st century and that um, don't, in my view, show that much interest in them as individuals or women in their own right. That's not all all of these biographies, of course, but that's true of some of them. And so... um, that is what I'm doing. I'm writing a, a biography where we're interested in these women and uh, we look at their lives before and in some cases after Henry VIII. So would you call it a revisionist feminist history of the six wives of Henry? I would call it a revisionist feminist history, yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, well, I can't wait to be talking about that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and I will hope to see you again on Hidden Histories. Great to talk to you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.